0: Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, and I'll begin reading here, starting with verse 1 of the book of Ezra. So may the Spirit of God illuminate the Word of God for us this morning. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the land of the officials, or the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you my god for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens from the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities we have we our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword to captivity to plundering and to utter shame As it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their unclean, clean, uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and live, leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. More than 100 years ago, on an April night, the sea was calm The air was cool, and the sky was clear. And so all was well. And so there were just these smooth waters. And everything was fine. Yet in mere moments, everything would be anything but okay. A warning bell rung three times... And at 11.40 p.m., the RMS Titanic hit an iceberg on the starboard side. Only a few hours later, at 2.20 a.m., it disappeared between the ice-cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean and more than 1,500 living and breathing people just like you and me died. And of course, we know that story. It is a sad and tragic story. Yet even though all was calm and well before they hit the iceberg, what had happened? The direction they were heading was anything but okay, right? They desperately, whether they knew it or not, needed to make a course correction. They needed to take heed to the iceberg warnings they had, not just once, but many times... ...throughout the day. Well, as we come to chapter 9... ...of Ezra... ...and with the ending of chapter 8... ...if you remember, all was well, wasn't it? (laughs) They had seen God's good hand. They had experienced the favor of God. And we rejoiced with them as we saw it. In mercy... God had brought them out of exile and in many ways, as we have seen, all of this has been hearkening back to the Exodus, right? The Exodus story, they were slaves in the midst of this foreign nation, yet God stirred the Persian king and he brought them out of exile and he brought them back to Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt Well, in the last two chapters, so chapters 7 and 8, God rose up Ezra to lead them. And to lead them in a second return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And as we ended chapter 8, we saw God's good hand was on them. And he had delivered them back to Jerusalem again. And so all was well. As we ended chapter 8, yet the people, even as we read here already this morning in chapter 9, we say they were headed into disaster. And it is an understatement to say that they had been warned. They had, in fact, been told again and again and again... (laughs) And again, repeatedly. And so it is then that we have in these opening verses this devastating news. And so the officials, they came to Ezra here. And even in this, as we we see these men come to Ezra, we see the kind of man Ezra was. Now, he was very likely very busy at this point, you know, since they had arrived four months earlier. He was busy teaching God's word as God had called him to do and as he had been called to do. And as he did that, we see he didn't take everything upon himself, but perhaps even lessons for me this morning and maybe for you also. Also. What did he do? He delegated out authority and he delegated out responsibilities, even appointing leaders as he was authorized to do by King Artaxerxes. And so here the officials came to him and they tell him of this grievous problem. The people were intermarrying. Now, as we see this, they didn't begin this way. You know, based on what we read, if you remember back in Ezra chapter 6, and I know all of you do, right? You remember everything that happened back in Ezra chapter 6. Just kidding. I know you probably don't, but as we read in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, what had they done? Well, they had made a separation between themselves and... And the pagan unconverted peoples there. And so they were doing as God had called them to do. Yet now at this moment, as we're coming into this chapter, now nearly 60 years later, things had changed. Somewhere along the way, they started to not separate themselves as God had told them to do. Even as Mike read to all of us here a moment ago from Exodus 34, we saw that intermarrying was not okay in God's sight. And so also we see in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 4, it says, God says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly now, as we read all this we need to see that this wasn't just about intermarrying it was about what came with intermarrying it was all of the the pagan false worship And unholy practices of the peoples. Now as we see all of this. It must be seen in a particular light. It must be seen in view of the fact that they were called to be what? They were called to be a holy people. Before the holy God. And so at this point we're right to remember all sorts of words from the Old Testament of what God had said of the people of Israel. We're right to remember God's words in Leviticus 19.2 when he said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or even the words of Exodus 19.6 when he said, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So in view of those words, we read here in Ezra chapter 9, verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. There's certainly many hard words there in those verses. But I think the hard words for us, or at least perhaps the ones that we might struggle with in our day right now, is that phrase, holy race. Yet, as you hear that, let me make very clear that this was not about racism. We need to be careful as you're reading your Bible, you don't just take America, you take its history, you take all you know of that word race and racism and so on and just kind of put it right on top of the Bible. That's not what we're to do here and that's not what this is about here. We even see that other peoples could join them. Of all variety of ethnicities as proselytes. I mean just think of a number of people in our Bibles, like Rahab, right? Even in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Think of Ruth, or even in Ezra, this book here, back in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21, where some of the foreign peoples did join them in the worship. Of the God of the universe. Of Yahweh. And so this was not racism. And so don't hear racism here. The literal translation of this... Or these two words is... Holy seed or offspring. Now of course that harkens back... To God's promises. God's intent... To fulfill his words to Abraham and even beyond Abraham. And so it wasn't about race. It was about faith in the Lord. It was about faith in Yahweh or not. Because the false gods, the peoples, they would defile the people of Israel. Their unholiness, false worship false teachings and more would spread like a plague among them and that is just what happened right again and again and so as the officials they bring all of this to Ezra it's evident here that god's word was before their eyes they knew what god had said and that it was not okay. And so as we see all this, we see a function of God's word here. Even for us this morning, even right now as you are sitting there in the pew, we see the correcting nature of God's word. The correcting nature of God's word God's Word is not dull. It is sharp and it corrects us. And it's to correct you and it's to correct me and it's to correct every single one of us. When we come to the Word of God, it is God speaking. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. You need not be looking about, saying, where do I find meaning? Where do I find truth? Where do I find all these things? Well, God Himself has told you who He is. And so we see here, they were walking contrary to God's Word. Now, of course, you know, all of this didn't happen overnight. Sin so often... Begins small, doesn't it? And then it starts to interweave and become begins intertangling itself like a vine around our thoughts and our hearts and our lives. And it's the same with you. It's the same with your family. And it's the same with this church. Slowly. Sin can entangle, it can strangle, and it can deceive. Yet in mercy, the word comes and it corrects us. It shows us what we're doing is a deviation, that we are heading into disaster, that it's not okay, it's not good, and so these are the options that are before us and before you. Either as you, the word comes and as it corrects you, either you continue in your sin or you put away your sin. either you hear the word of God and you receive it or you hear it and you reject it. You know, it makes me think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You know, there the people were living in this city of destruction. A city that was most certainly going to be destroyed with everything and everyone in it. And so, in other words, judgment was coming for this city, hence the city of destruction. Yet, as that happens, they... They're there and they don't want to hear any of those things. They don't want to hear what they're doing is wrong. They want to believe that this city won't last. And so what do they say? They say, out with you and out with your book as well. Well, which we know that book is being the word of God. Now the world... And its vain hopes are just that. They are part of the city of destruction. While we're, by God's grace, we're part of the city of life. Yet, as that is the case yet for us, that is not to breed contempt in our hearts, it's not to breed kind of this sort of self righteousness, like we look on at the city of destruction, the world around us, desperately in need of the word. We don't look out and say, Well, how how high and mighty I am, how much greater I am than you, how much more righteous I am than you. Absolutely not. We recognize that we are sinners, saved by grace. Not one of us here comes as holier than thou. So not breeding contempt in our hearts, but compassion, prayer, brokenness. A longing for them to hear the word of God, the gospel, and to believe it. And so we're not going around hating, but we're loving and aiming to win the loss to Christ. That's where our world is. And that is what our presence in the world is to be also. We're to be the light in it. Preaching the word even as we're being corrected by the word of God. And so maybe the Word is calling you back this morning. It's calling you to turn away from that precipice of sin, of whatever it is this morning. And it's calling you away from that precipice and turn to Christ. It's always that. Whether you're here and you know Christ or whether you're here and you don't know Christ, God is always calling us away from sin and always to His Son. He doesn't call us away from sin and to moralism or to being good boys and girls. He calls us always to Christ. That's what repentance is. We turn away from sin and self and we turn wholly to Christ again and again and again as believers. He is our life from first to last. And so if you're here and you don't know Christ, that means this morning. You need to see that this, this sin, it is empty. It is leading you off into disaster. But Christ will not and does not. He leads you always to life and joy into that city that will not fail or falter. He leads you out of the city of destruction and into the city of life. And so now having heard this devastating news, we have Ezra's response here. And what we find as we see his response, as we find a broken man for a broken people. A broken man for a broken people. There's no doubt about what we see here. He is undone. See his reaction there in verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Now, as you read that, you need to know that he is not overreacting here. (laughs) He can't fathom what Israel is doing. He was in dismay. He's in shock. He was disgusted, revolted, even grieving as though someone had just died. And we know something of this as well, don't we? I mean, even this week we've experienced this also, this kind of this just dismay, this shock. We have been appalled at what we have seen this week. All that took place, even as I prayed a moment ago at Covenant School in Nashville, that was grievous. And the shooting of a police officer here in Huntsville, friends, sin is shocking, it is appalling. Yet remember, sin so often, it does not begin big, it begins small, right there in your heart. And so before the Holy God, Ezra is not overreacting here. Sin is serious, and his reasons for responding in this way are many. Which we'll see in just a moment. But for now, in his shock and dismay, we see in the midst of all this that he's not alone. Verse 4. Others who trembled at the words of God, they gathered around him also. So God, he says in Isaiah 66:2, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles, at my word, Amen. well, these were some of those those who joined Ezra and trembling at god 's word. Friends, when you really believe god's word, it does that, and as I look out around us, I just I pray for that among us, I pray for that in you, I pray for that in me that we would be a people who, hum- who are humble and contrite and we tremble at God's word as they did here. And they didn't do it alone. We don't think of the Christian faith as some kind of solitary spirituality that you just do on your own. When you are called and when you know Jesus Christ, you're not called to a, you know, be, go to like a mountain or to a cave. You're called to the body of Christ. This is not a solo thing. We do this together and we're to come under the word together and we're to tremble over the word together even this morning. So now as we see him here in his response, I want us to do something. I want us to join him here. You and me get low with Ezra here. And what I mean is put yourself in his shoes. You need to see that all was not well. So he responds in verse 5. He fell on his knees and he spreads out his hands to the Lord he stretches them out as an expression of deep need for God. And he prays in verse 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. That's where Ezra is, on his knees, crying out to God. And we need to get low with Ezra this morning. And in order to get low with him here, to put ourselves in his shoes, we need to see why he's there on the ground. Why he's praying this way. First, he's low because of Israel's background. He's low because of Israel's background. They had been redeemed. They are God's people. They had experienced God's mercy and he made them his. Yet, as Ezra thinks on that, he remembers the rest of the story. He remembers their sin and how great their sin was against God. They were worthy of God's judgment. And so he continues to pray in verse 7. From the day of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. You see why he's on the ground? He remembers their background. And then second, he's low because of God's mercy and steadfast love. Even though they had sinned so grievously... Incredibly, graciously, mercifully, God brought them out of exile and they've seen his good hand once again. And so with Ezra leading them, standing even as something like a new Moses or another Moses, God has shown them his lavish, overflowing kindness. And so Ezra prays in verse 9, For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So having all of those things and seeing all of that now at this point Ezra is absolutely lost he is low and so third he's praying this way because he sees no basis for mercy in view of all of that they have sinned again again He's just like, what? What do I do? And so he asks here three questions. In verses 10, 13, and 14, and throughout all those verses. So in verses 10 through 12, he asks, what can they say since God has been so good to them? What can he say now that they have broken His covenant again. With something akin to another golden calf amidst the people. Then in verses 13-14 through 14 He asks, how could they do this? How could they break His commands and intermarry after God had punished them less than their sins deserved. You see why He is where He is? They had experienced such continual, persistent mercy. Then in verse 14 He asks, third question, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? They have forsaken God and they have forsaken His word and they have forsaken His blessing. So what hope do they have? And this is where he ends in verse 15. They are before the just God, a small remnant, and all they have is guilt with no one who can stand before God? Do you see? Do you see why he's on the ground? Have you gotten low with Ezra here? Why he has his hands up and he's torn his garments and he's crying out to God in prayer? He can't understand it. He can't see a way forward. There's no mercy here. There's no hope here. He's appalled. He's undone. Well, while we're on the ground with him, and I hope you are, let's consider these things with him as well. First, consider the gravity of your sin. The gravity of your sin. The reason he's low, it's because sin is serious and it is grave. Do you see your sin that way? All it takes for us to be separated from God forever is one sin. Just one. Now, I don't know about you. Wow, I have sinned way more than that. If You just think of the one command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. You are to do that with every second of your day. And every moment you don't, you have sinned. Forget about all the other commands. They're there too. But just that One. Every one of us, over and over and over again. One thing after another coming before my eyes. I love it more. So do you see the seriousness of your sin that it has separated you from God? Rightly. Before you can repent of your sin, you must see the grievous nature of it. Before we are lifted up, we must be bowed low. So then, along with seeing that, as we are low with Ezra, see also with him the hopeless ending. See the hopeless ending. You and I must see the disaster of sin. Do not be fooled. The boat is sinking. Hoping in sin for mercy, for life, for renewal, for revival is a false hope always. It will always take you down with it even as it deceives you, even as it's wrapping itself around you in your life, in your family, your identity, and everything else. And it will smile. And Satan will too. Saying, see how easily I deceive them again and again and again. Believing things that you never would have thought people would believe. This is the way this chapter ends. I know you would love for me just to pull back right now. But we need to get right there with Ezra. It ends with this sense of hopelessness. No mercy. That's where he is right now. He's desperate for mercy. He's desperate for grace. That's why he's praying this way. So consider this, friends. He's not thinking God owes them mercy. He sees and He knows that God does not owe them mercy. That's why he's praying like this. Our culture, and perhaps you right now, you maybe you're not, you're not thinking categories like this, you're just thinking, we're in our line with our culture. We're so rights-oriented. Even setting demands before God saying, you have to give me mercy. Or you're not fair. I won't believe in you. Or you're unjust. My right is mercy. Mercy. I think many people think of God that way. He's required to answer to me because I'm what? I think I'm God and he's my servant. But that's not the case. It isn't so. You and I have no right to mercy. God does not owe it to you. So feel the weight of these things. Feel the weight of all these things here. And it's then, when you're low with Ezra, and only then, when you see the gravity of your sin and the reality of your hopeless state, the bankrupt nature of sin, it's then that you're ready. It's then that you're ready to see and to take hold of God's mercy. How, what a light it is, not because you think you deserve it, because you know you don't. But there it is. And friends, incredibly, this morning, God has mercy to give. Amen. And this is so fitting for us Right before Easter. All of us hopeless, no mercy, but Easter is coming. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The reality of our sinfulness makes the reality of God's mercy in Jesus' death, in his burial, in his resurrection all the more glorious in Christ In Easter, we see the exodus of exoduses, where He's taking lost, dead slaves with Him to bring them into the land of promise forever. All their sin atoned for, paid for, forgiven through faith in Him. There is where justice and mercy meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is where hope is this morning for us and for you and for me and for all of us this no- morning. Not because we deserve mercy, because God is a God of mercy. Thank you, Lord. And there are times like the ending of this chapter here where it might seem like God's mercy has been exhausted. Maybe you're there right now. You see no way forward. All you have is guilt, this sin, this dirtiness, and everything else, those things going on in your heart, this weight, this burden on your back. And you're thinking, there is no mercy for me, there is no hope for me. Yet hear this morning that there is hope for you. you. God has mercy to give. The Lord. One preacher, he put it this way. When a child of God thinks he has exhausted the patience and mercy of God, He is something like a little fish in the sea which said, Oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm afraid I shall drink up the Atlantic. Oh, little fish, thou hast no idea how mighty the ocean is. Countless myriads such as thou art may swim in it and the ocean will be none the less. Oh, beloved believer, You need never think you will exhaust infinity. So maybe you're feeling hopeless this morning. Maybe you're low and even rightly so. Yet there is mercy still yet for you and me today. So before God his word, and before his great mercy. May our response be this morning that you and I, we would humble ourselves, not hoping in ourselves, but hoping and wholly hoping in God and the mercy of God. Amen. So may you do that today. May we do that today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. I pray and we pray together that, Lord, we would come Hearing the correction of your word this morning. The disciplining of your wonderful good hand. Hearing the call for every one of us in our pews there. Or if you lead us to come and pray on these steps. That we would get low with Ezra here. Seeing the hopelessness of sin, but then arising and seeing the great mercy of God. Oh Lord, help us, Lord, to glory. Help any here who do not know you to see the mercy that is found not in themselves or in this world and its ways, not in this city of destruction but in the city of life, in the God who gives life and has mercy to give. And so be with us, Lord. Help us respond this Palm Sunday, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.